part two. I started this, this message in our first service. And so uh, I'm doing a part two from what I started in the first service. And, and they stand alone, but they work best when you, when you bring them together. So I'll encourage you to, to uh, listen online to the, the 9 a.m. from today. I'm, I'm preaching a message entitled, Women in Ministry? Question mark? Women in Ministry? And, and you'd think, you know, for some of you would think, man, why do you have to preach on this? I mean, yeah, we know women can, can do ministry. But some others of you come from a background where women were never allowed to preach. They were never allowed to teach. They were never allowed in a pulpit to do anything but, but sing. And so what we're doing is we're taking um, this morning and we're just trying to plumb line everybody, get us all in this same sheet of music. And, and here's the thing that we realize there is much happening in the society, much happening in the church over the issue of how women are either being um, rightly positioned and, and properly honored or how they're being dishonored and objectified. And we recognize that the Lord is raising this issue. He's exposing misogyny and sexism. And at the same time, in the church, he's requiring the body to function together, male and female, in everything that we were designed to operate in. And, and I want to say this boldly, that unless the church embraces the gift and the grace of God uh, that's in women as well as men, the church will never enter into the destiny the Lord has for her. And so what we're doing is we're giving biblical teaching today on what the scripture says regarding the role of women, what women, what women are affirmed and commissioned and commended into. And, and then I'm, this morning in this service, I'm going to take a look at one of the, the tough passages of scripture that is often used to silence women in the church. And I'm going to dive right into it. I was... Uh, I was thinking just before I got up here, I've never heard a teaching on this passage. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Some of y'all already have that in your mind. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I've never actually heard a teaching on this passage pro or against uh, women um, preaching in church, but I have probably spent, I don't know, 20 hours just on these uh, 15 verses in, in the last few weeks. And um, there's, there's so many truths that I've held in my heart uh, regarding how women are to operate in the church that staring at this passage really calls me to wrestle um, theologically and, and, and hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. So I want to go right into the teeth of it. So let's look at this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse, we'll start at verse 9. Some of you are familiar with this passage. Some of you aren't. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, what's he about to say? Verse 9, I'm going to read the NIV. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 
But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen, let's stand. There you go. There you have it. We're done. Straightforward. Didn't mince any words. And here's the thing. Many people, well-intentioned, they read this passage. They read 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. They read them straightforward like that, and they go, well, there it is. Women aren't to talk, and there you have it. And uh, even in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 34, it says, I do not allow women to speak, but they must stay silent in the church. And I thought, man, Paul is so intense. Like, does that mean they can't talk in the parking lot too? What about house churches? What about home groups? What about if it's three people unofficially having coffee that all go to church together? Are, they, are the women allowed to talk if there's men around? And after reading these verses, there's a thing that happens to you. You know, you read the Bible enough to where you begin to get to know the biblical authors. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I've read Paul so much that when I read this, I go, huh, Paul, that does not seem like you because I have about five other examples in my mind of how you practiced something different than what this seems to be saying. And so I go, I think I know you well enough to know that I might be missing something here. Though it's very straightforward, I, I need to get behind this. I need to look at the original. I need to look at the, the context, the culture, and see if there's something that I'm actually missing in this passage. Because, Paul, I know you, and I know you to be different than what you're saying here. And so what I'm going to do is I want to approach this passage. I'm going to approach it exegetically, which means I'm going to allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. I'm going to use verses to interpret verses. But I'm also going to offer context that comes from the grammar of the passage as well as the historical you know setting that Paul was speaking into so we can understand what it is that that Paul's actually talking about here I, I will tell you his history historical context it means a lot um, you know a, a few weeks ago uh, Amy Lyle preached um, on Mother's Day it was awesome how many of y'all enjoyed that yeah and, and she made a reference to going to get donuts, right? Dunkin' Donuts, right? And I dismissed the service by saying, now go get some donuts. And many people laughed, and then I heard that many people went to donuts, to Dunkin' Donuts. And, and Dunkin' Donuts should probably give us a little tithe off of whatever happened. But that, that's all aside. <clears throat> the point I'm trying to make is, if in 2,000 years somebody transcribed that message and then had my sort of benediction along with the transcription in which I said, now go get donuts. We're 2,000 years in the future. What do you think they would do with that portion of the, of the verse? Do you think every time they'd read it, just they'd run to go get donuts? Do you see what I'm saying? It's contextually bound by the culture and the time. And I'm going to propose to you that what Paul's doing and what he's saying here 
has much to do with the context, the culture, and the time in which he's speaking. And I'm going to show you where a major portion of this is completely misinterpreted, all right? So let's just begin to work through this. Now, here's what I want to mention, and I, and I, I basically spent the whole first service describing this concept, but I want to talk about principle and praxis. It's what I've just described. But if we see principles from a biblical author like Paul, and they are in opposition to what Paul actually practiced, then what we're understanding as his principles, it, it, it may be that we've misunderstood his principles because he's not gonna live in opposition to the things he was teaching, right? He's a biblical author, and this is eternal truth. This is the scripture. And, and so whatever he was living and however he was acting, uh, that should be something that fortifies the instructions that he was giving. Isn't that, isn't that true? So if his, if his instructions stand in opposition to how he lived, then we need to go back and look at what the instructions were to see if we're misunderstanding them, okay? So that's principle and praxis. And, and so here's a thought. And I spent the whole first service doing this. But if, if 1 Timothy 2 is interpreted to mean that women are not allowed to teach or ever have authority over any male adult, then the following biblical scenarios that are all affirmed and commended in Scripture should have all been disallowed. Okay? And here they are. Deborah being a prophet over the entire nation of Israel and judging the nation as the leader of the nation should not have been allowed if 1 Timothy 2 means that women can, no, can have no authority over any man ever. Miriam being a prophet sent before the nation of Israel alongside Moses and Aaron, giving leadership to the nation as it was coming out of bondage and into the promised land. Should have never been allowed if women are not allowed to have any authority over men or ever teach or instruct men. Thirdly, Huldah, who was a prophetess who instructed Josiah and the priests of the time, uh, should never been allowed to do that if 1 Timothy 2 says that women, if it, if it means that women can never have authority or teach a man. The Samaritan woman from the well, preaching to both men and women about Jesus, should never been allowed. In fact, Jesus should not have told her to go tell them what the Lord had done. In fact, John 4, verse 28 says, she went and told the men what had happened. Jesus should never have done that because he clearly didn't read what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Jesus should never have told Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to go instruct the apostles that he was risen from the dead because women are not allowed to teach men. He, again, should have brushed up on Paul's first letter to Timothy. The women from the upper room on the day of Pentecost, there was men and women there together who received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who then were out in the street declaring the wondrous works of the Lord, declaring the, the beauty and the wonder of God to men and females, to males and females. They should have never done that because they're to keep silent. What were they doing all filled with the Holy Spirit with visible fire on their head speaking in other tongues? Crazy. 
And Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila were the leaders of a house church, should never have taken Apollos aside and instructed him in the way of God more specifically when all Apollos knew was the baptism of John. See, Priscilla and Aquila, they heard him teaching that, but she should have never said anything to him about it because according to 1 Timothy 2, she has to be silent. But instead, she actually did, and she actually taught him uh, a load of biblical doctrine because all Apollos, who was an apostle, all that he had was up to the baptism of John. He had to be instructed in everything all the way up to Pentecost and even including the Jerusalem Council. You're talking about a massive amount of theological content that Priscilla is credited, along with Aquila, her husband, in teaching Apollos. But if 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 means that women aren't allowed to do that, something is really, really amiss. And my point is just this, that we're misunderstanding 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12. We're misunderstanding 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Now, because of time, I can't do 1 Corinthians 14, but I will tell you it's very, very similar to what's going on in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I mentioned how we get to know biblical authors, and so let's just take a look at Paul for a second. Let's just get to know Paul and think about Paul's treatment and commendation of women, and then we'll use that as a sort of a contrast to what it looks like 1 Timothy 2 is saying. So, in Romans 16, it's really, really interesting. Paul is giving final, he's giving final instructions and some greeting and, and some salutation to different uh, folks that are there in the church in Rome. And, um, and so uh, in seven verses, he commends four women. See, Paul gets a bit of a bad rap. I, I see theologians all the time calling him a misogynist, the more liberal theologians. If you look at Paul, if you get to know Paul, you find out that Paul was very, very against legalism, very, very much into freedom. But thing, the thing you also realize about Paul was he was gentle and tender towards women and affirmed them in their gifts and callings. And in a minute, I'll explain this more thoroughly, but when it came to evangelism, Paul was really interested in making sure that the church didn't give offense in how they acted within the culture that they were in. He said, I become all things to all men that I might win some, right? And in 1 Timothy 3, which is just one chapter after 1 Timothy 2, which we're gonna look at in a second, he's talking about the, 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 the requirements for overseers, and he says, if the guy is gonna be an overseer, he's gotta have a good testimony with those who are outside the church so as not to cause people to stumble. He had this sort of ethical, cultural apologetic where he didn't want the church to be a stumbling block in anything that they didn't have to be a stumbling block in. But let's look at how Paul treated women. Romans 16, let's look what he says. Verse one, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria. That word servant is a Greek diakonos. It's the word that we get deacon from. Paul would later tell uh, Timothy what the requirements were for a deacon. This, this word servant was actually a leadership position that Phoebe held in the church of Centria. 
says, I want to commend to you. And some translations of the scripture even call her a leader. Some call her a deaconess. But the, the, the way that this text works, this servant of the church, it's basically a title, deacon of the church in Centria. Okay? So he says, I commend to you, Phoebe, this deacon of this church in Centria. He says that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of also myself. He said, this woman has poured herself out in her role as deacon for many, many, many people, including me. He goes, please serve her in whatever way she needs. So he commends her in this ministry of a deacon. Then he goes on and he says this, verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Priscilla and Aquila are known as house church leaders. They had a church that met in their home. They're identified multiple times through the book of Acts. What's interesting here is that Paul puts Priscilla's name first, which four out of the six times that they're mentioned in the scripture, Priscilla comes first. That's a huge point. Why? Because culturally, it would be completely out of place for the, women to be, the woman to be mentioned first. Uh, in fact, if the man was the leader of the house church, he would be mentioned and likely his wife would not be. But instead, when Paul mentions Priscilla, he puts her first and Luke does the exact same thing. And why? Many commentators believe this, that Priscilla was the principal spiritual leader in that house church. And Paul clearly affirms her as one who's a, a leader, uh, a fellow worker. She risked her own neck for his sake, as well as for the churches, the Gentile churches. This woman is commended and affirmed by Paul in her ministry. All right? So I'm just setting a, a course that we see Paul's praxis. We see the way Paul is. We want to get to know Paul so that when we look at 2 Timothy, we actually get his flavor on the passage. All right, next, he says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epinitus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. And then he says this, verse seven, and this one is, I'll, I'll just be honest, it's much contested, but it's split about 50-50. I read 40 commentators on this verse yesterday. <laughs> I just, I, I mean, you don't want to do that encourage you. But I did. Because I'm not getting up here making stuff up. That's the point. We pray, we fast, we study the scripture, we study the, the commentators. We really do the work so that when we're actually sharing it, we're not just coming off the top of our heads. Doesn't mean we're always right. And we are so willing to be instructed by truth. But here's our thing. Our allegiance is to truth, not to a theological position, not to a denomination, not to some kind of think tank in some kind of seminary somewhere. Our allegiance is to truth. Even if the truth is painful, I want truth no matter what. Because truth, oh, as painful as it may be, is so much better than believing a lie. Because ultimately, truth will set you free. So he says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles 
who also were in Christ before me. So interesting when you read the commentators on this. People speculate as to who these guys are. It's, it's a guy and a girl. Andronicus is the male. Junia is the female. They're supposed to be husband and wife. They might be brother and sister, but most believe they're, be, they're husband and wife. Most commentators, because of what Paul says they were in Christ before me, have them as either getting saved on the day of Pentecost, part of the 3,000, or having earlier been a part of the 70 that were sent out by Jesus. So, so interesting. This phrase he uses, he says, they are of note among the apostles. That phrase is a really difficult phrase, and commentators, they go back and forth on it, and it's split about 50-50. Some of the commentators say this. They say it just means that they were noteworthy people that all the apostles knew. They were outstanding believers. Others, the other half, see it as them being called noteworthy apostles themselves, Andronicus and Junia. What's interesting is it kind of doesn't really matter where you side because these people were imprisoned for the gospel. Now, why is that important? Because you didn't get imprisoned for the gospel by keeping your mouth shut and not acting like a Christian. You got imprisoned for the gospel by preaching the gospel. And so here's Paul saying these are, they're my uh, countrymen, which means they were, they were actually Jews with him and fellow prisoners in prison with Paul. And I just wonder, what would you be doing with Paul to make you go to jail? Apostling, <laughs> preaching, teaching, doing all the work of, of, of the gospel ministry. And notice he doesn't just identify just Andronicus. He says Andronicus and Junia. Now, I would just say this. If Junia was an apostle, it settles all the issues. We, we can go home now. If by chance she was just a noteworthy believer noted among the apostles, at the very least, she was imprisoned for the gospel, for preaching the gospel and suffered for Jesus, and Paul commends her and says she's noteworthy, not just for me, among all the apostles. My point that I'm actually making by identifying these three women and the way Paul treated them is look at the honor, look at the commendation, look at the affirmation, look at the way Paul's handling them, look at, look at the way he's treating them. He's, he's very much lifting them and affirming them. He's definitely not muzzling them. It's just not Paul. It's just not Paul. When you get to know him, you realize that's not how he acted. When you get to know Jesus, you realize that's not how Jesus acted. Jesus sent the Samaritan woman at the well back to preach the gospel. He didn't tell her, don't you dare ever try to preach, not in public, ever, because 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's going to be written and it's going to shut you down. No, he commissioned her to preach. Jesus did, okay? So when we see the praxis of the scripture, then we have to look back at the principles that we're deriving from the teaching of the scripture, and we have to discern, are we understanding the teaching properly in light of the praxis, okay? So that's why I bring that up. I want us to understand Paul. Paul was heavily affirming of women instead of muzzling them. All right, so let's now look back at this, this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This 
This passage, nine, in verse 9 through 15, it's a part of a, the whole chapter. And, and what you find in this whole chapter is this. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul is making an appeal in regards to missional living. Everybody say missional living. Missional living. He encourages them to pray for men everywhere, especially for those who are in authority. He goes, I've become a herald of the gospel, and I want to encourage you to remember that the Lord has been resurrected unto to anyone who believes in him, in him shall be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2. And then in verse 9, he changes kind of his focus and begins to address specifics about how women are to carry themselves. Now, the first thing I want to draw out is this. In 9 to 15, he uses the term woman and man, woman and man, multiple, multiple times, okay? There's two, there's two Greek words, one for woman, one for man. I don't know if you care what they are. One for, uh, for woman is gune, for man is aner, all right? Woman is gune, man is aner. Every other time Paul uses these terms together in the New Testament, which when you, when you get the notes from online, I have the whole list. When he puts them together, he is addressing the husband and wife relationship. Okay? Every other time, it's husband and wife. These two words, gune and aner, are wife and husband. They're the same terms that are translated wife and husband in the New Testament. Why is that important? It's important because what Paul does in verse 9, when he begins to change sort of the focus of what he's doing in the chapter, what he does there is he begins to address husbands and wives and the appropriate way that they're to interact in that society. It is not this broad sort of address to all women and all men everywhere. It is a narrow address to husbands and wives and how they are to conduct themselves in a Greek society. Timothy was a pastor over Ephesus. Ephesus had several different issues going on. They had a massive uh, cult of Artemis, which was a, a, a female goddess. They had several other sects uh, of, of uh, cultish activities. And they actually had a, a portion of the government that was, uh, they were commissioned. This is well documented. There's books written about this. They were commissioned to make sure the women operated appropriately within the society. It's pretty stunning, but that was part of the Greek culture back then. And so what Paul does in verse 9 is he changes his tone and his focus to begin to address women and men in marriage, husbands and wives, and how they're to appropriately act. Why is that important? It's important because <laughs> this passage is often used to universally paint men and women and say this is how women are supposed to act. But instead, Paul's intention is to deal with the specifics of a husband and wife and how they're to live inside of that culture, that Greek culture in Ephesus. Now, I know that's a little bit heady. I know that's a little bit like uh, intellectual, like what did you just say there, bro? So here's what I'm telling you. Instead of reading the passage, I want the women to dress modestly, 
I think it's totally reasonable. In fact, every other time Paul uses these two terms in the New Testament, he uses wives and husbands. It's totally reasonable to read it this way. I want the wives to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearl or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for wives who profess to worship God. A wife should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a wife to teach or to assume authority over a husband. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But the woman, the wife, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So what we get from Paul now is we see that the grammar that's being used dials us in on a very specific application. It's husbands and wives. So often, verse 11 and verse 12, they're yanked from the context. They're yanked out of the cultural context. They're yanked out of the grammatical context. And they say, women can't talk. They should be silent. They can't teach or have authority. And what Paul is addressing is something much different and much more narrow. In verse 13 and 14, Paul uses Adam and Eve as an example the reason why he's using Adam and Eve, Adam was formed first, then Eve, he's appealing to headship in the home. Listen to me. The reason why he now mentions in verse 13, Adam and Eve, is because he's talking about the created order of headship in the home. One of the arguments that people use with this verse right here is they say, see, 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 Adam was, he was created first and Eve was second, so Adam gets to speak and Eve doesn't. If created order, if it deputizes somebody to speak and others to not speak, humans should not speak. because we were last in the created order. We should be listening to the dogs and the cats and the birds and the bees and the fish and the bugs. Instead, I'm not saying that just to be sort of silly, but my point is that's not what Paul's driving at. He's driving at husbands and wives in the, the order of headship, and, and, and he's gonna actually explain what's going on here. Why is the headship, why is it the way that it is? All right, so the main point I wanna, I wanna just land at this moment is when we see woman and we see man in this passage, I'm convinced that Paul is talking about husbands and wives. And I'm not saying that just off the top of my head, there's, there's real scholarship on this out there. That it's, it seems to be very clear that Paul is not giving a universal kind of uh, um, rule for all men and all women everywhere. He's actually dialing in on the way husbands and wives are to relate within the culture. Let me just draw your attention to something. In verse nine, he says, he goes, I don't want women's adornment to be braided hair, gold, pearls, costly clothing, uh, elaborate hairstyles, uh, but good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So, I mean, the largest percentage of, of 
scholars, commentators, they will all point to those two verses and they identify them as being related specifically to the first century era, that they're not to be applied to today. Uh, it's, it's a you know, very narrow swath of, of churches, and I gotta, I gotta give them a little bit of credit because at least they're being consistent <clears throat> who disallow women from any kind of makeup, braids in their hair, wearing any jewelry, pearls specifically, or gold, or any kind of expensive clothes. Like, they're being consistent at least. But most of the people that use the passage to say that Paul is trying to tell women to be quiet in verse 11 and verse 12, they completely throw away verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 9 and verse 10 goes in the culturally irrelevant pile. Verse 11 and verse 12 goes into the universally applicable pile. That's a massive problem. Either we take verse 9 and 10 as ironclad and we say, no braids, out. We bind your braid in the name. Like, unless, if, if we don't do that with verse 9 and 10, then we need to actually treat verse 11 and 12 the same way. You see what I'm saying? Like, if verse 9 and 10 we see, okay, that's culturally applicable, then we have to look at verse 11 and 12 and go, perhaps it's culturally applicable too. Here's what Paul's overarching thing is. He says, husbands and wives, I want you to operate in propriety, in decency, in godliness, and in modesty. That's what Paul's shooting for. That's what this whole passage is about. He goes, I want us to be a witness. I want us to pray for those in leadership. I want us to, to, to pray for the whole society. I want all those that want to be saved to, to come to Jesus. And he goes, now, let's handle ourselves in decency and propriety where? In the home. Why? Because the home was the nucleus for the society. It was the greatest place of testimony that the gospel would be expressed towards other families. So if it's, if it's appropriate within the home, then it's gonna be, be able to be digested by those in the society. Now here's my point. What Paul outlaws in verse nine and in verse 10, the, the braiding of the hair, the, 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 the adorning um, uh, with gold and pearls and expensive clothes, what he's disallowing right there, you, you can only know if you know the culture at the time. He's disallowing the attire of a prostitute. That's what he's saying. He goes, women, wives, he goes, tell you what, let's stay completely away from pearls, gold, braiding of the hair and expensive clothes because the temple prostitutes all dress that way and we don't want you to cause any kind of stumbling. Let's let it be decent. Let's let it be proper and appropriate. Let's, let's express godliness through the attire. It would be no different than if today we said publicly, hey, let's not wear low-cut things with body parts showing or high-cut things with other body parts showing. And let's just be honest. We actually have a dress code for our platform right now. Our women don't wear shorts on the platform. Well, one reason is because the platform's four feet up in the air, and this is a bad angle. Let's just leave it there. And there is a principle of weak people who are dealing with certain lusts that we don't want to become a stumbling block for that Paul explains in the Scripture. 
weaker brothers and weaker sisters who, 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 aren't as, who aren't as convicted in certain areas. And so he says, let's not give a cause for offense. So what Paul's doing there would be virtually the same as saying, hey, let's make sure we keep a, 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 a dress code of propriety on the platform. Does that make sense? You guys are doing so good. I was worried. I just, I, just had this, I just had this picture in my mind, like, I'm going to be teaching away, and y'all will be like, what the heck is he talking about? Y'all are doing amazing. Okay, I'm trying. I'm trying to bring it. So, verse 9 and 10, he, he, he makes this appeal to appropriateness. All right. I want to I draw your attention to another grammatical, two more grammatical um, issues. The word... That is, um, that is translated silent in the passage. Let's just look at it again. It says, um, uh, well, in the NIV, it does actually use quietness and be quiet. So verse 11, uh, a woman should learn in quietness, and uh, verse 12, she must be quiet. When you read the New King James, it basically says, it uses the term silent. A woman must be silent, she must stay silent. So intense the way the translators did this. And I've read articles on misogyny in biblical translators. It's pretty, it's actually pretty mind-blowing. But let's just stay on point. So this terminology, the word that, that's translated silent or quietness, um, is used uh, by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And in there, it's translated settle down. And the idea is that this, this concept of quietness is about being at rest and being settled and being peaceful. It extends beyond just a verbal silence. Does that make sense? It's, it's the same concept of the, the peaceable, quiet spirit. That Paul, that Paul also emphasizes for women, all right? So it would be just as easy for Paul to, to, to say this, that, that women should learn it with, with quietness or with a settled heart, or they, that they, should, they should be at rest instead of that they should be verbally silenced, okay? It would be just as, as legal sort of to translate it that way if I could say it like that. And so when, when, um, when people demand that this passage requires women to, to be completely silent, to, to be completely you know, shut up, to, to, to never speak, and, and then they bolster it with 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, what they're doing is they're, they're using one kind of small um, application of the way these, these words can be applied instead of looking at the whole kind of context and the whole flavor that these words can, can carry. And, and when you look at Paul and you look at how Paul used these terms, the, specifically the term quiet or quietly or settle down or at rest, when you see how he used them in other places, you get a much different feeling about what he's actually saying here in this passage. And so he says a woman or a wife should learn in in, in quietness and in full submission, 
He goes, I don't permit or I don't allow a woman to teach or to assume authority. And that's the phrase I want to land, assume authority over a husband. I don't allow, permit a wife to teach or assume authority over a husband. She must be at rest or be quiet. This assume authority, this is a really, really interesting uh, word. And, And I know we're getting a little technical, so just hang in here with me. Smack your neighbor if you need or if they need But here it is. This assume authority, it's only used this one place in the New Testament, and it's rarely, rarely used in Greek writings of the time. It's a word that specifically spoke of taking authority that was not actually given to you. He goes, I don't allow a woman to usurp authority that hasn't been given to her. That's the idea that's going on here. And why was that necessary for Paul to address it? Because in the day, at the time, with the temple of Artemis and with one of the mystical cults that was going on, there was this whole concept of the new woman, which was that she was domineering over men, very Amazonian kind of, what's that, Shira, you know? Some of y'all know Shira. Very much that kind of Amazon woman image And so here's what Paul goes, he goes, listen, listen, I don't permit the women to take on that kind of mentality where they're taking authority over the man to to instruct them and, and usurp the authority. I don't permit the wives to do that to their husbands. He goes, if they're going to learn let it be something where they're they're doing it submissively with a with a quiet heart. This is much different than some sort of kind of thing where we're saying women cannot ever teach at all because all these other examples identify women teaching, preaching. What Paul's addressing is something that's very much culturally bound, very much within the the, uh, relationship of a husband and wife. All right, so those are your cultural issues. I mean, those are your grammatical issues. Uh, Let me spell now out the, the cultural issues, okay? Uh, as I mentioned, we're talking about Greek culture. We're talking about first century. As I mentioned, verse nine and verse 10, almost nobody applies those today. And if verse nine and verse 10 stand under a banner of culturally relevant to the day, we have to see verse 11 and 12 in that same way or we're being inconsistent. And so Paul's addressing this because he's dealing with the issue, as I mentioned, He's dealing with the issue of the prostitutes of the day. He was, he was basically defining what a, a prostitute's outfit was, and he's saying, hey, let's, let's not have that kind of an attire. Let's conform to societal norms. Let's not stick out where we don't have to. Let's, let's handle ourselves in a way that's more modest and more appropriate. He goes, I want you to have a good reputation with outsiders. He literally says that in 1 Timothy 3, 7. And so he's, he's really desiring culturally, as was his way all the time, that they wouldn't be a stumbling block, and he's specifically giving instructions to husbands and wives, 
and how they're to operate with one another. What, what the clothing would be, what clothing would be appropriate and what kind of interactions would be appropriate. Because even in that society, when women were, were uh, boisterous and loud and domineering, it was extremely frowned upon and looked down upon and, and it was unable, uh, it would be unable for the gospel to penetrate that kind of a thing, that kind of a, uh, an attitude. And you, you might hear that and think, well, that's a stretch, I don't know. Well, let me, let me give you a, a couple modern day examples of exactly what I'm talking about, what Paul was addressing. So we have teams in Middle Eastern contexts. We have missions teams right now in closed nations and uh, in highly Islamic areas, okay? So for us, we give rules for our men and our women on how they have to operate within those cultures so as not to be a stumbling block. If our women in certain cultures walk around without their head covered, it doesn't matter how much anointing and power they have on them in the gospel, no one will listen to them. No one. And so there are these culturally bound uh, rules that we actually have to give our teams right now, today in the earth, that don't, they're not universally applied, but they enable the gospel to go forth without reproach. I read of a testimony, and I've seen this in China, I read of a testimony where a female missionary went to a town that had never heard the gospel, and uh, the men in this town, the, the way that the, the society worked, it was extremely patriarchal, so the men never engage with women in public conversation and not in, in any form of instruction. So this, this female missionary, she led a bunch of women to the Lord. The women then went home and led a bunch of their husbands to the Lord. In the church, when the church gathered, the men could not, because of the society, sit in the room with a woman instructor. It would be such a shame for them. So the men, here's what they did. They put up a sheet, created two rooms, and the men sat in one room while the, woman, the women sat in the other room, and the woman, preacher and teacher, taught the women while the men were learning on the, in the other room. I know that sounds crazy for us right now because we're all in here and male, female, it's all good, but in that culture, this is a modern example, in that culture right now in the earth, for men and women to be co, uh, to sitting together, co-ed in a, in, a, in a teaching environment and to be taught by a woman is completely not acceptable. And so if I was giving an instruction to that mission environment, we would say something like this. We don't allow the men and the women to sit together. We ask that the, the men and the women are separated by a sheet the men on one side and the women on the other, and that way anybody can instruct them, male or female. We might give that style of an instruction. Beloved, what am I saying? I'm saying this. Paul's instructions here in, in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 are very specific to the culture, and they apply specifically to the issues of a first century Greek culture to keep the women out of being shamed along with prostitutes of the day and to, and to keep them from being censured along with uh, those that were of the, the, the cult of Artemis who these women were, were you know, trying to overthrow the men in, in, some, in some quadrants. And so here's what I wanna do. 
I want to just mention that Paul references the creation order, and, and I want to explain quickly why he does that, and then I want to offer a paraphrase, Humphrey version, with a, with a I'll give a footnote to Stephen Eugen because he helped with it. Humphrey, you, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give him the main, Eugen Humphrey version. Um, and then I want to pray, because here's what we're going after. We're, we're going after liberty. We, um, you know, we have affirmed the role of women. We've declared it. We've prophesied it. We've prayed for it. We've had women preach from the pulpit. We're giving um, a, our first kind of theological explanation even right now, and I know this is not full. I mean, there's so many more details that have to be teased out. And, and now we're in moments where we're praying and talking in leadership of how can we now walk this out? How can we see women teaching and in different leadership environments from the platform and in other, other environments in a, in a real you know, forthright way. But we're in this moment right now where things in the earth are coming to a head, but here in our spiritual family, we wanna deal with this thing once and for all. We wanna give courage to every single person that's a part of our spiritual family, male and female, that we could all operate together in the calling and the giftings of God. So that's where we're at. So I'm gonna pray, even this morning after the first service, one of our women came to the front and she was just broken and saying, I am going to, for the first time, step into the calling that God has called me into that I've been putting off for years because of this teaching that women aren't allowed to speak. And so that's what I'm aiming for right now, that if there's a stronghold in your mind over old teachings, I wanna dismantle that with the truth of the scripture and the knowledge of God and, and what's Paul actually even saying here. All right, let me just dial it in and then we'll pray. I'll, let me summarize this and, and I'll give you the paraphrase and then we'll pray. So what Paul does when he brings into the picture this, this issue of Adam and Eve and, and the man was created first and not the woman, he's, he's making an appeal. He's making an appeal to appropriate headship in the home. And I realize that we need a full teaching on headship in the home because that means a bunch of different stuff for every single different person that's in the room. But, but let me just reference this. 1 Corinthians eleven three. it says this. It says, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. And I would say, husband is the head of wife, is specifically what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 11. And so what we see is that in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-existent, co-valuable, co-powerful, all God, right? Three in one. We actually see in their co-equal state that there's actually headship, that the Father is the head of Christ. And so what God does in the created order is he expresses himself in male and in female, right? He made them man and woman, male and female. He made them in his own image and likeness, right? The image of God is in male and female. Oh, I just feel like I'm hitting a demon. The, <laughs> the image of God is in male and female, okay? Who he is is expressed through male and female. 
okay? And so what he does in the home, though, is he creates headship as a mirror of the picture of the Trinity. The father is the head of Christ. The husband is the head of the wife. Why? Because he's declaring who he is even in the marital relationship. He's always speaking to us of himself. Now, headship in the home doesn't mean that the head gets to rule over all the others and they're all subservient. I guess I'm doing the teaching on headship now. Headship means that you serve first, you love first, you humble yourself first, ready? You die first, just like Jesus died for the church. Husbands are called to give themselves for their wives. This is headship. What does it mean that I, as the head in my home, what does it mean that I get to do? It means I get to repent first. Glory to God. When there's an argument, a disagreement, the head is supposed to show his authority, and in the kingdom of God, he who serves has all the authority. Okay? So the head humbles himself, serves, gives. I don't always do this right. Sometimes I'm really bad at it. But that's how it's supposed to go in the home. And so it's an image. It's a picture. It's a picture of the created order. And, it's, and it's, I mean, what we have in the created order is a picture of, of the Trinity. That's what I'm trying to say. So what Paul is doing here with Adam and Eve is he, he's reminding the women, because you go, you know, he goes, all right, so here's what I need you to do. I want you to be at rest. I want you to, to learn in quietness. I want you to be submissive to your husbands. Because again, in the culture, that's a, a really, really, really frowned upon thing. He says, uh, he goes, don't domineer or usurp authority or instruct your husbands. Be, be at rest. And then he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He goes, now, I'm reminding you, the creation order. It's a picture of the Trinity. It's a picture of the headship within within God. He goes, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. He goes, so remember, when the sin of the fall happened, there were curses that came with that. Part of it was that you would have your desire for your husband, that the way that the headship would work was that you have male and then female, and, and the woman would, would, would be uh, in submission to her husband. And he says, but, verse 15, women will be saved in childbearing. Now, that seems really odd. What does that even mean? Well, again, back to the curse of the fall. If you remember the curse of the fall, your desire will be for your husband, he shall rule over you, and what? Your pain shall be greatly multiplied in childbearing. He goes, oh, 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 if you're worried about the childbearing thing, women, you're gonna be saved in it. Wives, you'll be saved in that. He goes, God's gonna cover you. He's gonna take care of you through that. That's not gonna, it's not gonna be something that's gonna kill you. He goes, you're gonna be delivered through that. He goes, just live lives of faith, of love, and uh, propriety with holiness, okay? So, Here's my paraphrase. Let me give it to you. I'm already there, but let me just go ahead and read it to you, and we'll wrap this up. So this is what I believe would be a, a really reasonable way to understand what Paul's intention was in, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 through 15. Since it would be offensive to the unbelievers around you for wives to go around wearing the same attire that prostitutes wear, Please don't wear elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Likewise, since Greek culture finds it offensive for women 
to get out of alignment with societal norms. Wives, make sure that you're peaceable when you're publicly, publicly receiving instruction from your husbands. Don't act in a domineering way toward them by being instructive with him. If you're wondering why I'm saying that wives should submit to their husbands, I'll remind you of two reasons. Adam was created first, then Eve was created. This is a picture of the co-equal persons of the Trinity having distinct roles. Second, it wasn't Adam that was deceived first, it was Eve, and part of the punishment for that sin was that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over you. So just as Christ is head over his bride, your husband is to be head over you. By the way, now that we are talking about Eve's punishment for sin, if you're worried about this part of the curse, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Just remember that as long as you're walking in faith, love, and holiness, God is going to keep you safe during childbirth. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, that's it. I'm done. All right, let's stand. <laughs> Feel like I got out unscathed, didn't say anything too stupid, just end it there. Did I say it the way you told me to? Thanks. We wrestle with this stuff. We pray. We study. We dialogue. We really want the heart of the Lord. And that's why we take pains to teach a hard passage like this on a Sunday morning. Like we didn't do it in the classroom like down the hallway at, you know, 9.30 on Thursday night. <laughs> you know, because it matters. And what matters to us is that we honor the Lord, that we honor the word, and that we operate as a spiritual family the way the Lord designs, and that we get free. That we can live according to the way that God has designed for us to live and operate in our gifts and the graces he has for us, male and female, across genders, across cultures, across generations. Let's just pray for a minute. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, you know our desire is to be fully yours and to be what you're dreaming of for us as a spiritual family, to see your bride, male and female, functioning in all the graces and gifts that you have for her. And where misogyny has held down and subjugated women. God, we want that to be broken in fullness in our spiritual family. We don't want just the theology of it, we want the practice of it. And so Father, I'm asking even this morning with these theological underpinnings, with the truths of the biblical examples, that where bondage has existed in in, in the minds of, of different ones, I'm asking right now, would you break every stronghold that's subverting the gift of God? Would you deliver? And Lord, those that are women that are called to preach and teach and, and lead, Father, would you, right now, would you set them completely free? 
I just want to say, if you thought, well, I know I'm a teacher, but I guess I'll have to use it in the, in the school system or in the business sector, or I know I'm a leader, but I guess I'll just have to be a leader in, in the marketplace or something. I just want to tell you, no, we, we need you. If you're a woman and you're gifted and called as a teacher, preacher, leader, we need your gift. We, we're not complete. The church is not complete without you in your proper role. So come Holy Spirit, I pray shatter strongholds right now. If you'd say male or female, if you'd say this has shifted something in my thinking or it's encouraged me to step into what I believed in my heart, I just didn't have clarity and understanding. I just wanna invite you to raise your hand. I wanna pray for you. There's just something that happens when we respond. Lord, hands all over the room. Right now, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, dismantle every glass ceiling, dismantle every twisted, perverted mentality, tear down every thought of suppression and subjugation over the women, tear it down. Liberate men so that they can, they can serve and bless with with complete freedom, hearts that are secure in who they are as men, that women wouldn't be held down by the men. And God, lift the women, let them soar. Let the men soar, let the women soar. Let the church soar together. Sweep freshly across our minds. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Grant us breakthrough in the days ahead. Great breakthrough. Women preachers, teachers, prophets, evangelists, pastors, apostles, leaders in many, many, many sectors. Do it, Lord, we ask.